Now, good morning, church. Hello. Let's try that again. Good morning, church. That's a lot better. Good to see you. It is with uh, really a lot of excitement that I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 13. We are back in the book of Acts. We took the month of August off and did a couple other things that we thought were really important in the life of our church. And now we're back to walking through the New Testament book of Acts. So find your place there in chapter 13. Turn your Bible on, open it, whatever you need to do. But also, as you're doing that, I want to point something out to you that's really exciting. Our kids' ministry, our family ministry team have prepared for you and for your children worship guides. If you've never used these, I encourage you to check these out. They'll be at the doors as you come in. Um, We, as a church, believe we want to equip you as parents to continue to invest in the life of your kids. So, provided these little worship guides, they can follow along in the service. We've provided some crayons out there for the kids. And listen, if you're an adult and you want to use crayons, you can pick up some of those too. We don't want to, you know, keep you from that. But this is a great tool. Encourage you to check that out that Pastor Austin and our team have put together. It'll be there at the door for you. Um, Acts 13. Now, let me just ask you a question this morning as we get started, kind of coming off even the message last week. We, we believe that the gathering of God's people like this, every time we get together, is eternally significant. So I want to ask you, what did you come in here this morning hoping, expecting, trusting God to do this morning? Maybe you came in here and you're just already, you know, you're kind of distracted and going through the motions and it's just what you do maybe as a believer or maybe you're here for the very first time and you're checking out this church or even checking out this thing called Christianity, but we... We believe that every time the people of God gather together, it's a unique grace from God. And we believe God is doing some things of eternal significance every time we gather. Now, we're going to see that lived out very vividly in Acts 13.1 as the church called Antioch comes together and God speaks and God reveals His will. And literally, as a result of the people of God coming together... History is changed forever. So what are we expecting and asking God to do as we, God's people, gather together this morning? Now, let me just review a little bit from the book of Acts. I know we've been away from it for, for a while, but we, we come in Acts 13 to a real critical juncture in this great book. To be real honest, Acts 13 is a critical juncture in, in all of human history. Something's about to happen that impacts human history in a way that you're going to see in just a few moments. Acts 1-8, you remember, as the book of Acts opened, Jesus, uh, he, he, he's getting ready to depart from the earth, and he, that 120 that had gathered there, his disciples, he makes a promise, and he gives them a command. He says, guys, I'm going away, but I'm leaving my spirit to indwell you. You're not going to be by yourself. In fact, my very presence is going to take up residence in you. And you'll find your joy and your strength in me as I dwell in you and my spirit. And that's a promise. I'm I'm sending my spirit, Acts 1.8. And then he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, but you've got a mission. You've got something that you're to be about. He said, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. And we've seen that play out in the book of Acts. 
right? 120 believers, the day of Pentecost becomes over 3,000 and then balloons into over 5,000 and the church is just taking off there in the city of Jerusalem. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria. And we've seen that happen with Philip and Stephen and others as they carry the gospel and they cross those cultural barriers and they cross those geographical barriers and they take the gospel out from Jerusalem. And then Jesus said, but you're not going to stop there. He says something to them in Acts chapter 1, and they really didn't even understand completely all the implications of what he says. He says, look, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to start right here in Jerusalem. It's going to go through Judea and Samaria, and you, you're going to be my witnesses. The church is going to be my witnesses to the, to the very remote, uttermost parts of the entire earth. What started here, what's happened here, is going to go to the ends of the earth. Now, as we come to Acts 13, that is about to take root and that is about to practically begin to take shape. Up to this point, most of the activity around the gospel has taken place in a little region there in the Middle East, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, up into Syria, just a little bit. And now from the book of or from the church at Antioch, the gospel for the first time is going to cross the ocean. It's going to go into other nations, and what's about to happen. Here in the church in Antioch, Acts 13, literally you could say, you and I are sitting here today, 2,000 years later, because of what's about to happen here at the church in Antioch that we're going to read. Eternally significant. So there's a lot here. i got to tell you, I'm really excited about Acts 13. We're going to go up into Acts 14 a little bit too. So you, you kind of follow along and hang on. You can take notes this morning. Let's begin reading Acts 13, 1. Bible says this, now there were in Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas, you remember Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he came up from Jerusalem. There was Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, both of those men from what we understand, historically speaking, are from the continent of Africa, so you have a, a leadership team that's gloriously diverse. Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and there's Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch which means he was in the house of Herod the, the king over that area and then oh by the way a fellow named Saul. <laughs> Pretty good lineup there. Saul later becomes Paul as you know verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting we don't know exactly what's going on here, but apparently the church had gathered, the leadership had gathered together. There was were praying, they were fasting, they were seeking the Lord, and we'll just kind of put it under this manner. The church has come together there at Antioch. And something incredibly significant is about to happen. As they were gathering, the Holy Spirit of God speaks and He says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now I doubt very seriously that even as the Holy Spirit was speaking there, and we don't know exactly how he spoke, we'll talk about that in a minute. I doubt very seriously the church had any idea of what was happening or how what God was doing there was literally going to change the face of the world. So God speaks. Verse 3 says, then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, 
Let's all be real honest with each other this morning. There are no perfect churches. Amen? (laughs) I don't know that you, I know you believe that. You're just not willing to say it this morning. I get the emails. I know there's no perfect churches. So if you've been a part of this church, you know we're no perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. We have gaps and weaknesses. If you're new to Tri-Cities, I hate to burst your bubble, we're not a perfect church. You know why? Because we're made up of imperfect, broken people. So welcome to a broken, messed up church. We're glad you're here. But God chooses throughout human history from the book of Acts on to take broken, messed up churches and impact and change the world. Antioch is not a perfect church, but i got to tell you, for us, 2,000 years later, you're not going to find a better model to look at and say, God, would you let us continue to grow and be, be somewhat like the church at Antioch? There's some characteristics of the church at Antioch that we're going to kind of walk through. They're going to guide us through Acts 13 and 14. I'm going to show you four or five things as time allows this morning about this church and what's true of all churches. Antioch was, it was led well by godly leaders. Antioch was an amazingly generous church. Antioch was a loving church. And Antioch, here's what you're going to see about the church at Antioch through the rest of the book of Acts. Antioch was sold out and had as their laser focus to make Jesus known. They were willing to sacrifice whatever it took. They were willing to do whatever it took. They believed God had brought them into existence. We know from Acts 11, a group of men, we don't even know their names. The Bible refers to them as them. Them, this group went and planted this church in Antioch. And God's going to use this church in Antioch. This church is sold out. They, they believe to their core they exist to find their joy in Jesus, to make Jesus known to the ends of the earth. To take the gospel message. God, let us learn some things from the church at Antioch. So as best I can, I want to show you four or five things as we walk down through these verses about the church at Antioch. And in general, churches that make Jesus known. Five things. Number one, here we go. Truth number one is this. Churches making Jesus known are spirit-filled. Now, I don't know how that statement strikes you. It depends on your background. It depends on your upbringing. Some people hear the idea of spirit-filled, and they get a little nervous, and they're afraid weird, you know, kind of crazy things are going on in Antioch. But listen, throughout the Bible, we see that the gospel advances, churches advance, disciples are made when when the Spirit of God is active and present and working through His churches and in the life of His churches. Look at this. What did it look like in Antioch for the Spirit to be leading and directing and guiding the church? Verse 1 says, now there were in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Now why does the Bible start there? And why does the Bible hold that out as a characteristic of the church at Antioch? Well, what we know is they were teaching, they weren't just teaching fairy tales and fables, they were teaching God's revealed truth. One of the key characteristics there at the church in Antioch is they were a people who were taught well and they were fed well. And it seems that they were a church, from all that I read, that had a very high view of Scripture and a very high view of truth. So in that context of a people who are pursuing God's truth and prophets who are declaring God's word and teachers who are teaching God's word, they were also, the Bible says, they were praying and they were fasting. 
So you have this church that's saturated with God's word. You have this church that's a, a desperately, like Josh said earlier, a church desperate in prayer, really, really wanting God to work and wanting God to use them and reveal himself. So they're fasting and they're praying. And then God speaks. Now, we don't believe this is some ecstatic utterance. We don't know exactly how God spoke. Perhaps he spoke through one of his prophets. We believe that God speaks today. God speaks through what he has already spoken. But the point is, God, in the context of the word of God, in the context of the people crying out to God in prayer, God speaks. And he takes his general direction, go to the ends of the earth, watch this, and he makes it real specific. He says, Antioch, you know what I've called you to do. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. But here in verse 2, it says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. He makes it even more clear what they are to do. Verse 3 says, And then when they had fasted and prayed. I don't know if you caught that or not. It's really interesting. It says they were fasting and praying. God spoke. And then they fasted and prayed more. <laughs> Translation. Here's what that means. What? God, are you sure? <laughs> Listen, I don't want to over-spiritualize it. I, I see it. I mean, God is revealing something that he's calling the church and some of these leaders to do. God makes his will known, and, and he speaks, the Bible says, and then it says they prayed and fasted some more. Have you ever been in one of those moments where you're pretty sure God is prompting, leading, guiding, directing, saturated with Scripture, in, in prayer, and, and your question is, God, <laughs> hold on here just a minute. I don't know what the dialogue at Antioch was like, but I, I'm sure the church at Antioch had to say something like this. Listen, we got a pretty good thing going on here. <laughs> I mean, we've been growing, we've been reaching people, we've been making disciples, and now you say, you want to take Barnabas away? Barnabas? You, you want to take Saul? I mean, they're, they're leaders in our church. What are we going to do without Saul? What are we going to do without Barnabas? I'm sure there was a wrestling going on there to confirm what God was prompting and leading and guiding them to do. You say, okay, Pastor Mike, what does that have to do? You said this is characteristic of being spirit-filled and spirit-led. Let me, let me define with this what it means to be a church spirit-filled from what we just read. John MacArthur says it this way, a spirit-filled church is a church where people walk, live, talk, and think, and act in the energy of the Spirit of God because their hearts are given over to the saturation of the Word of God, and they live in submission to the Spirit of God as He guides and leads. Now this is the kind of church that changes the world. You hear that? The, the, the Word of God has such a place in our heart and in our lives. I even know this morning when I say the Word of God has a place in our heart, you say something like, oh, I treasure the Bible. Okay, is it part of your daily diet? Does it have place in your life? So that when you come into the gathering like this, your hearts are already prompted and your hearts are already sensitive to the voice and the Spirit of God. And when we're praying as God's people and we're gathering as God's people, man, the Spirit of God is guiding and leading and directing us as a church. 
And then you see a key characteristic to being a spirit-led, spirit-filled individual in church is when the Spirit of God led, guided, and directed through the Word of God, they were obedient to what God called them to do. They were submissive. And listen, we could over-spiritualize that and say, yep, submissive to the Spirit of God. How many times when the rubber meets the road in your life and my life and in the life of us as a church, the Spirit of God may be directing and guiding to take a step of action or a step of obedience, and we know what the Word of God says, and the Spirit of God has brought that to be crystal clear in our lives, and we, I don't know about that. And filled with the Spirit and directed by the Spirit's directly related to the place you give God's Word and the way we live in submission and obedience to what God is calling us to do. You see that, the church at Antioch. Now, I'm really trying to guard my time this morning, but there's something else here that I really want you to see because I think it's so important. You need to understand this. To whom does the Holy Spirit speak here? You say, well, I can't tell. I mean, he's talking about Barnabas and Saul, but it doesn't necessarily seem that he's speaking to Barnabas and Saul. Let me answer the question for you. It seems that God is speaking to the church. And then I ask the question, okay, who then do you see wrestling to clarify God's will in verse 3? The church. And then ask the question, okay, then who obeyed collectively what God called them to do? The church. In other words, I need you to see something here that's very important, especially in our Bible Belt mentality when we hear God speaking or God leading. Here's what we think. Man, I've got to go off by myself, kind of, kind of live like a monk and get alone. And there's absolutely places for that. But what you see here is a clear picture that God leads and God, God guides and God directs. Watch. In community with other believers. There's a life principle here, and I could say it like this. God chooses to make known His specific will through His Bible-saturated, desperately dependent people as we seek Him together. Listen, it ought to be a glorious grace in your life to realize you are not in this thing alone. And by the way, I would take it a further step and say this. It is a dangerous and prideful assumption to assume God's will in the particulars of your life if you are not living in biblical community with other believers. Y'all hear that? Because let me just tell you. You and I have a really good capacity to distort God's will and God's plan and become very self-focused and we can justify anything. Amen? I can. Don't look at me so spiritual. So can you, right? God has given us the gift of the church and other believers. That's why I pray, God, we ought to be running to our study groups and running to our life groups and running to opportunities to sit in a circle with other believers and say, I just got to tell you, I'm wrestling with this. I I think God may be leading us here. I'm not sure. Would you pray with me? Would you wrestle with God with me as we seek God's particular will in our lives? And that is a gift from God that he gives to us The family of God. And you see that lived out here in Antioch. So truth number one, we see really clearly that churches that make Jesus known are spirit-filled. Let me give you a second one. Number two would be this. 
And you say, Pastor Mike, you got five of them? Yeah, we're going to get there. Hang on. All right, you guys are listening really slow this morning. Number two is this. Churches making Jesus known face opposition. Now, let's see how this plays out. So the church at Antioch, they, they hear the voice of the Lord, they obey, they, they send out Saul and Barnabas and at great loss to themselves in a way, but also in great gain for the kingdom of God. So here go Saul and Barnabas and this team, and they launch them out, and we pick that up in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia, that was the seaport that was right down from Antioch. Antioch was a little bit inland. Then you go to this port called Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. Now why'd they go to Cyprus? Well, they went to Cyprus because Barnabas was from Cyprus. And I just have to believe that Barnabas believed that friends make known the love of God to their friends. And he said, look, if we're going to go to the world with this gospel, first place we're going to go is back home. I got some people I got to tell. So they went to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, that's a city on the island of Cyprus, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. You might want to make note of that. That's John Mark, the writer of the second gospel. He'll come up in a minute. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, that's the other side of the island, they found a magician, a Jewish prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. So that's interesting. They found a magician named Jesus. (laughs) The, the phrase Bar-Jesus literally in that day would have meant son of salvation. So they meet a man whose name literally meant son of salvation. He was with the proconsul, that means governor, so he had audience with the governor of Cyprus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul, and what's this? Sought to hear the word of God. So they get to the island of Cyprus, they're making Jesus known, and the governor sends them a text and says, hey guys, I need to hear this message that you're sharing. So they, maybe they gather in his office, we don't know what happened, but look, as the Bible tells us, verse 8, but Elimus, who is Bar-Jesus, that's just his Greek name, same guy, so the magician, right, the false prophet, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, I want you to stop right there. This is hugely significant for you and I this morning. There is now a wide open door for the gospel. This governor of Syria says, will you come? I want to hear more about what you're teaching about this Jesus and this cross and the resurrection. And it says, there was this dude that began to oppose them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The word oppose means to resist, to set oneself against. Here's the takeaway for you and and me this morning from this. When you begin to move into the lives of people in order to shine the light of the gospel of truth, listen to me, you can expect opposition. If you've been part of this church for any amount of time, you know that we, we're doing everything we can to advance what we call a share culture here, where it's just who we are. We are making known the love of God to our friends. We take these little cards. Many of you guys know that. You take these little cards with three names, and we're writing down our three names, and we're praying for our three names. Can I just share with you, based on this passage right here, when you're praying for three names of people that do not know Christ, you're not just praying a little prayer. You are doing battle with satanic forces in the heavenly places. 
You say, Pastor Mike, you're taking that pretty seriously this morning. Listen, when you're praying for the salvation of a soul, it says here this Sergius Paulus, he, he was ready to hear. He said, come tell me the gospel. And this dude, Bar-Jesus, who, by the way, presented himself as a spiritual man. The word magician in that day, it didn't mean something necessarily. We didn't, they didn't think of it as evil. It's the word magi, from which we get the idea of the magi who came from the east. They were spiritual men, if you will. He presented himself as a very spiritual man. Son of salvation was his name. But he was opposing the advancement of the gospel. So we're not playing games as a church when we pray for people who don't know Christ. And you're entering the very battlefield of the enemy when you go into people's lives and you're looking for opportunities and you're begging God to open doors and you're ready to share the gospel with them. I'm just telling you, expect opposition, right? right? Now, I've got good news. The story continues Verse 9 says, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, that's a huge turning point in the book of Acts. Saul now takes on his Greek name, Paul. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. Who? The magician. And said, you who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. What does Paul do here? He calls evil, evil, and he calls a lie, a lie. Just, you need to know, if you're, trying to, if you're trying to be used by God, God saves, God enlightens, God illumines, God regenerates, God does it. He, he uses you. And when you're the messenger and you're taking the gospel, just understand you're working against spiritual forces in the heavenlies. And here's this guy that's trying to twist and turn. They're working against deception. Paul says, you son of the devil. He says, you're not the son of salvation, you're the son of the devil. Right? Real friendly guy, Paul. You're an enemy of all righteousness. You will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Paul prayed. This guy is stricken with blindness. This guy's not allowed even to speak anymore. And then you come to verse 12. Watch this. Then the governor or the proconsul believed. Why? Because he saw a miracle? Nope. He believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. He was amazed at the message of the gospel of the Son of God. God opened his eyes. God restrained evil. Paul shared the message, and this man is gloriously saved. Here's the conclusion. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We're on the winning team. Right? Now, if I said that to you as Tennessee fans, and I said Tennessee is going to win tomorrow night, which I don't know if they're going to win or not, I don't know, and I said, man, we're on the winning team. Everybody be, yeah, we're on the winning team. Listen to me. You're on an eternally significant winning team of a sovereign God who is saving men and women. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He believes. God brought him to faith. God used this church. God used Paul to bring him to faith. Now, there's that kind of opposition and there's other kinds of opposition. Keep reading with me. Come to verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos. So they leave Cyprus and they're headed to the mainland there of Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. And they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and just a little note there, it says, but John left them. 
and return to Jerusalem. This is John Mark. I mentioned it earlier. This is the writer of the second gospel. Something happens between Cyprus and we hit the mainland and John bails out. There's opposition that's going on internally. There's external opposition. And now there's this fight, this struggle that's going on even within John Mark. We don't know why he bails out. Maybe he's homesick. Maybe it's too intense for him. Maybe We, we don't know exactly. But here's what we know. It doesn't seem to be very pleasing to Paul that he left. And it doesn't even seem to be honoring to the Lord that he left. Because you get to Acts 15, and I'll just read this verse really quick. You don't have to turn there. Later on, several years later, Paul and Barnabas want to go out for another journey. Barnabas wants to take John with them, and Paul says, no way. Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark, Acts 15, along with them. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone to be with them in the work. In other words, John has an internal struggle And John simply does not obey what God was calling him to do. That's pretty challenging to me. And I imagine that is pretty challenging to some of you here. Here's an application for you. Barriers to making Jesus known exist in the hearts of the hearers. We just saw that, Sergius Paulus, the governor. But barriers to making Jesus known exist also in the hearts of the messengers. That's us. I have no doubt whatsoever that in a church our size and in a church like ours, there are some John Marks that are here that have heard what God is calling them to do and know the step of obedience, but for whatever reason, they justify something less than obedience, just like John Mark. And in doing that, we can be in literally opposition to the work of God. Listen, I pray that we are a church, and we've seen this, and, but I pray more and more that we see men and women and students that are raised up, and God is so a hold of their heart, and they, they're so overwhelmed in Jesus that they are sent out to plant churches, and they are sent out to the ends of the earth, and we want to be constantly a church that is commissioning and sending. You know that's our desire, but sometimes there are John Mark situations where we know there's a step of obedience, and we know God is tugging us our hearts and we know there's a step for us to take and we simply resist and wrestle and disobey the call of God on our lives God let that not be us so we know in churches where Jesus is being made known there's opposition we we know these kind of churches are filled with the spirit let's see what else we can find out about these churches just quickly I'll give you the last three a, a little bit quicker so these kind of churches are filled with the spirit and These kind of churches, they they face opposition. Truth number three. Churches making Jesus known utilize various strategies but share the same gospel message. If you follow the history of Paul and you follow Paul and Barnabas and those that were sent out from the church in Antioch, here's what you see in the book of Acts. They make Jesus known by preaching in synagogues and public services. They share in small group settings. They have conversations in the marketplace. They're leading discussions in different places and they are talking to people one on one. In other words, you see all kinds of methods and all kinds of techniques and all kinds of ways to to get the gospel out in the 
lives of other people. But here's something I want you to see that's a glorious reality through the book of Acts. It is absolutely the same simple but yet powerful, glorious gospel message that changes lives. It's the same message. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. You say, you say I see all that and I, and I read about Paul and I read about Barnabas. And, but that's Paul. And that's Barnabas. And I'm just me. And I, I'm not clear with the gospel. And I, and I get nervous. And sometimes I don't know what to say when I have opportunities. And I've, I've got all these fears that I'm just not that good. And, and I don't know that I can even share the gospel with others. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. We, we heard this at our elder retreat just a few days ago. Spurgeon said, someone may preach the gospel better than me, but no one can preach a better gospel. Meaning, it doesn't matter how eloquent you are, the same powerful gospel message that Barnabas carried and Saul carried, and you see, turn the world upside down. Listen, child of God, is the exact same message that you bear, the exact same gospel message. And sometimes we give excuses and we have a list of reasons why the gospel and presenting the gospel is not for us and it's for the professionals and it's for others. And Pastor Mike, I'm getting so tired of hearing you talk about this and I know where to go and all this. Listen, I want you to know that the same message of the gospel that you have that transformed your life is the same gospel message shared by Paul and Barnabas that turned the world upside down. Because I think, I think, one of the obstacles for us advancing the gospel as a church is this. Our reluctance to share the gospel is often not because of inexperience. It's not because of lack of training. But regrettably, it is our failure to believe in the power of the gospel message. The gospel is good news. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus came to the earth. He lived a life you could not live. He was the perfect, holy, righteous one of God. He took on your sins and mine. He died a death. He rose from the dead. He has ascended on high from where he shall come again. And by faith, all that he accomplished, watch, will be credited to your account by faith. Same glorious gospel message. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Brothers and sisters, God, would you give us a confidence in the power of the message of the gospel? And would we so believe that the gospel is good news, nothing is able to stop us from making Jesus known. To our friends and our neighbors and the ends of the earth. Amen? Number four, quickly. Churches making Jesus known multiply disciples and multiply churches. For sake of time, and I encourage you to read chapters 13 and 14 on your own if you're following along in the reading plan, but I'm going to jump up to chapter 14, verse 21. Paul is gone up into Asia Minor, he circled through the cities of Lystra and Derby and Iconium, and now he's making his way back in this circuit, and he's on his way back to Antioch. He says this, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, 
That's not the Antioch that they started. That's another Antioch, by the way. There's two Antiochs. They're not back home yet. Verse 22 says, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. There's a process of not just winning people to Christ, not just holding out the gospel, but then the process of discipleship and connecting men and women into a healthy, dynamic, growing church. It says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, One of the glorious realities that you see here is now, after about a year of being sent out from Antioch, there are churches that are dotted all over Asia Minor in cities like Lystra and Derby and Iconium, these places where Paul went. There are churches that are there now. And when you say church, listen, you're going to be disappointed if you think a building like this or thousands of people and all the structure. They don't have that. Here's what they have. A group of believers that are gathering together. And Paul says they appointed elders. They had leadership. And now they're beginning to grow as this fledgling little church. And they're all over Asia Minor. There are worshipers there now. Paul and Barnabas were used that are giving worship to God that months ago were not giving worship to God. There are believers gathering and singing the praises of God. And the gospel is going out in these cities where months before it simply was not. Churches are being planted. Worship is now happening. Churches have started. Elders are being appointed. For us, for us as a church, Tim Keller says this, church planting was woven into the foundational fabric of the first century church ministry. It was happening constantly. Paul never evangelized or ministered without also planting churches. If you follow this trajectory in the book of Acts, you see that wherever ministry took place, disciples were made, the gospel was shared, new churches were started. There's a process that takes place, and yet you may be shocked to realize that in America today, 90 to 95 percent of churches never plant or reproduce another church. Meaning that that church never goes on beyond one generation. That's why I am incredibly grateful to God for His favor and His grace that He is so kind to us that He lets us pursue a church planning strategy here because we believe it's the biblical model. And we want the ministry to live on past one generation of this church. God has allowed us to be involved with church plants in Arizona and Colorado and New Hampshire and Washington, D.C., in Portugal, in Zambia, in South Africa, in Laos. We're now beginning to open the door. God's opening the door to ministry in Indonesia among unreached people groups but we're just scratching the surface of what I'm praying God allows us to be a part of is a church planning movement that will come out of the the resource rich south where we have all the resources the bible resources and we have all these godly leaders and we're all kind of clumped up here in the south that over the next five to ten years god will launch many of us out listen i love you and i love a full auditorium and i love a full church i'd be really satisfied if god sent about half of you out to go plant churches there's one anybody else why To be able to rejoice in what God is doing and be able to realize there is now worship going on there that was not going on. There are now believers gathering there that was not happening and we are simply answering the call of God. I think God has 
I am trusting and believing God is giving us the grace as a church to continue to be a church planning church impacting eternity. And many of you will be a part of that in significant ways. Be careful how you pray. God may put on your heart to be a part of a plant in Denver or a plant in Portland or be a part of a team that's going to Indonesia. And as a church, we would say, Lord, man, I'm not sure that you need to send that person. Or it may be, I'm saying, God, thanks for sending that person. Whatever the case may be. But we're trusting and asking God to let us be a church that multiplies disciples and multiplies churches. Amen. Final point, and I'm done. Verse 26 says, from there... They sailed to Antioch, so they're going back home. This journey of being sent out, this is the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. It's coming to a close in verse 26 of chapter 14. From there they sailed back home to Antioch, from which they had been commended by the grace of God. That's where they started. For the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them. And now they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time there with the disciples. Here's truth number five, and we're finished, is this. Churches making, church, churches making Jesus known experience great joy. Can you just imagine what it would have been like to be there? They gathered the church together again. And I think they, gather, they were gathering weekly. And Paul and Barnabas, man, they're, they're sharing these stories. And they say, the governor of Syria came to be a believer. And we saw it. And there was this magician dude. You wouldn't believe what God did. And Paul tells the story. We didn't even get to get to it. Of, of When I was in Lystra, I was stoned. And they left me for dead. And God gave me life. And I, I went back into the city and preached. And there are churches there now. And they were able to say to the church at Antioch, you have brothers and sisters all the way in Asia Minor, in Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And man, just like Paul said here, there was this sense of joy that they had accomplished. Watch this. Whether it's great things in the world's eyes or it's small things in the world's eyes, Paul seems to say that church could rejoice that they had been faithful to what God had called them to do. So for you and for us as a church, as we talk about this being filled with the Spirit and making Jesus known and sharing Jesus and all this, I want you and us to know the joy of simply obeying exactly what God calls us to do. Listen, I know for some of you, that means for the first time you, you begin to write a name on that card. <laughs> Whereas months before you would say, I didn't even know a lost person. I'll be honest, I didn't even care. But God's doing something in my heart. For some of you, it's, it's, it's saying, it's coming to your life group and gathering with your life group there and being able to say, you know that, you know that fellow I've been praying for and we've been praying for? Man, he wants me to... He wants me to come over for dinner and I'm going to get to share the gospel with you. Would you pray with me? For some of you, it's going to be the joy of saying, God's put this desire in my heart to be part of a church plan and to be sent out. And I'm so excited. Some of you, it may be, man, God's, God just will not let me get off of my mind 
the 1.6 billion people on the planet who've never even heard the name. And I want you to know the joy of wrestling with the call of God, submitting to the call of God, and us as a church sending, and us as a church hearing that we, we got to push back darkness in a part of the world to the glory of God. Churches that make Jesus known know great joy. I want us to know that joy. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, I ask that you would just do a, a work in our hearts this morning. God, I pray for the person who's here, God, and they're wrestling with your will or they're wrestling with a step of obedience. And Lord, to be honest, they're just making a ton of excuses. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be a spirit-led, spirit-filled church that is submissive and obedient to the word and the will of God. Lord, no matter what it costs us, financially, people, we don't get to do some of the things other churches might do that might be seem important because we want to make Jesus known. And Father, I pray for the person who's here this morning, right now under the sound of my voice, that they don't know you. They have religion. Maybe they're trying to be good. But God, I pray for the person in this room right now that simply has never come to believe and place faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. God, right now, would you open their eyes? Would you present Jesus as glorious? And Lord, I pray they believe. And I want to say if that's you this morning and you're wrestling with what it means to know Jesus Christ and God's tugging at your heart, when we dismiss here in just a minute or even when we begin to stand and sing, you can slip out the back of this room and there's a prayer room. Right at the top of the stairs, there'll be people there waiting for you. And you can go pray with them and they'll answer any questions you have about what it means to know Jesus. For us, we're going to continue to worship and we're going to sing as God's people this morning. Great truths of who Jesus is. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Christ's great and mighty name we pray. All God's people said together, amen. Why don't you stand?